This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. On the day her first book came out, a new translation of Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross, Mirabai Starr's daughter Jenny was killed in a car accident. She says, My spiritual life began the day my daughter died. Even with decades of spiritual practice and a deep immersion in the greatest mystical texts, she found herself utterly unprepared for what she calls her most powerful catalyst for transformation, her fiercest and most compassionate teacher. Out of this experience comes the book Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. We have with us today on Common Threads its author, Mirabai Starr. Hello, Mirabai. Hi, Fred. You know something, and I should tell people a little bit, I should give them your street cred. Uh, You are an adjunct professor of philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, correct? Yes, I haven't taught there in in a couple of years because I'm on the road almost all the time now teaching retreats and workshops. Ah, okay. All right. And, And aside from this book, I mentioned The Dark Night of the Soul. You also translated The Interior Castle as well as uh, uh, God of Love, correct? Right. I've translated uh, several of the works of St. Teresa of Avila as well as John of the Cross, but God of Love is the first book really in my own voice, which is really an, an exploration of, of the interconnected wisdom at the heart of the three Abrahamic faiths. You have had a fascinating, and I would say that you would probably not disagree to some to some degree a uh, a dysfunctional life not not of not of your own doing but you were you were raised in a in a, just an interesting way i i have to tell you that uh, the the memoir of your childhood and your young adulthood is i i think would be interesting to anyone of any spiritual or non-spiritual tradition and and you you seem your life, especially uh, your younger life, seems to be an encapsulation of a generation. And and I want to talk about that and what led you to certain uh, decisions in your life and and how you ended up to be the person you are now. But before we talk about Mirabai Star, I think it's important because it's in the book. You talk about the original Mirabai, if we can call her that. She may not have been. She might not have been the first person ever to be called Mirabai, but you know who I'm talking about. So let let's talk about this uh, this great Hindu saint. Mm, right, my my namesake. So I was given the name Mirabai by Ramdas when I was 14, and it was following a play that we did with my hippie free school in the early 70s, uh, where we wrote a musical about the, the life of the great 16th century poet Saint Mirabai. So Mirabai was uh, born into a privileged, wealthy, royal family uh, in, in Rajasthan, India, when she was 
uh, I mean, in the 16th century, and she was betrothed, as as um, all young girls were and often still are, uh, as a child to a prince um, who was much older than she was. But as a little, little girl, when she was around five years old, Mira and her mother were standing on the balcony of their palace looking out at the street below, and there was a wedding procession going by with elephants bedecked with jewels and musicians and dancers and a beautiful bride and groom uh, side by side on their elephants. And Mirabai was smitten by the, the beauty and pageantry. And she asked her mother what was going on, and her mother explained that that these two people were getting married and that they would love each other for all their lives. And Mira asked her mother if she would be able to get married. And her mother said, you're already married, honey. <laughs> you're married to Lord Krishna, who was the the household saint. You know, most, most families in India then and now have particular deities that, that are their family uh, doorway to the divine, their their deity uh, for that family. And so Lord Krishna, the god of love, uh, was the family's deity, and there was an altar to Krishna inside. And so the mother took the child inside and had her kneel before the statue of Krishna and offer her prostrations, and and um, they, they did a puja, or, or an offering of light to Krishna. And, and in that moment, something happened in the child's heart that where the gates of her heart really flew open, and she fell deeply in love with Lord Krishna. In fact, she took the statue from the puja table, from the altar, and brought it uh, into her room and slept with it every night throughout her childhood and carried him with her everywhere and began to sing and dance and compose love poetry to Krishna. So by the time she was 16 and ready to be married to a man... She she wasn't into it. He was not. He was not who she loved. She was in love with Krishna, not this mortal prince. And there's a lot more to the story than that. But that's uh, she. She when she didn't cooperate with the with the shall we say um, expectations of marriage. Her in-laws tried to have her killed in all kinds of of ways. And in each case, the legend goes anyway. Uh, their their plans were foiled. They just came apart in in the fire of Mira's love for Krishna. And eventually her husband also became a devotee of Krishna. His family were Shaivites. They were devotees of Shiva. It's a very different tradition than the, the Vaishnava tradition of Krishna. And he became a devotee of Krishna and really of Mira herself and soon after was killed in battle um, in, a, in a civil war. And she spent the rest of her life wandering and traveling barefoot and ecstatic, singing these love songs to God, which are still um, very much uh, sung and, and revered uh, today throughout India. Yes, indeed they are. So you hung on to this name. Ram Das gave it to you. And and Ram Das, by the way, is is a, a gentleman who very very important in the development of Hindu influenced religion in the United States, particularly to non Indians. Uh, great author. He wrote the seminal book "Be Here Now," and and you met him. You were a teenager, you say. Right. Right. 
And so the fact that he bestowed this name on you, and, and your birth name is what? Paula. Paula. Paula okay. Star. Okay. So, so clearly, you, you could become Paula anytime you want, yet you've chosen not to. What is it about the name Mirabai that, that has kept it uh, affixed to you? Uh, that's funny, because I've never actually publicly said this before, but um, when I left my first marriage, um, I was married to someone who had actually been uh, an, an abuser uh, of mine when I was a teenager, and this is in the book, this this um, rather sordid but also kind of funny story. Uh, and when I finally extricated myself from that terrible relationship, I was 30, and or 31, I think, and I tried to go back to Paula, and I just I tried for one summer, <laughs> and it just didn't work. I mean, Mirabai has infiltrated every cell of my of my being. So what is it that that keeps me connected to that name? You know, and my family, by the way, completely willingly adopted it when I was given that name at fourteen. By the time I was fifteen, nobody was calling me Paula anymore, and now I don't think anyone could even imagine such a thing. I, uh, it's forty years later. But um, Mirabai is a devotional poet and singer, and those are two aspects of my being that are very much alive. Uh, I do sing kirtan in the Hindu tradition, that is devotional chanting, and I'm definitely a writer, but my writing tends toward the rhapsodic and the lyrical rather than the kind of discursive and scholarly. And there is a there is an element of wildness and uh, an, an unwillingness to abide by social and religious conventions that Mirabai embodied that I very much relate to. So that that deeply devotional, heart centered life and artistic ex- creative self expression is very much part of my who I am although I have another side that is almost the opposite, that is the philosophical, discerning, skeptical, sometimes bordering on cynical side, where on some days I would call myself an agnostic, even even an atheist. So it's all it all kind of lives inside me in, in a very large container that has been um, expanded by by life experience that has taught me that things don't fit into tidy categories. Yeah, and it, one of the interesting things about it for people who read your book, Caravan of No Despair, is I mentioned earlier this this significant dysfunction in your life as a young person. Sometimes people who are brought into dysfunctional spiritual uh, uh, environments, when they get out of that environment, they leave everything behind. Clearly you did not. I tried. Yeah, yeah. Let's as, go on. As I write about in the book, I tried to fire God. I spent about a year. Mm-hmm. Just wouldn't leave, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you called security. You, you had his uh, files uh, all all put into boxes, and he was ready to be escorted out, and just just wouldn't go. I tried I, to uh, delete <laughs> him from my Facebook feed. Yes, unfriend him. <laughs> Just wouldn't happen. So, tell us a little bit about about your uh, your background. Now, you come from a Jewish family, right? Right. Do you? Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. Do you identify on any level as a Jew anymore? I do. I don't think anyone in my family does, but I do. No, I think my mother does in the sense that at her, 
she always says, you know, if they came if they came for us, you know, I would be the first one to go in, one of the first to go into the ovens, meaning that that we're Jewish by birth and and there's a sense I think that people of my parents' generation live with of being unsafe in this world by virtue of their ethnicity. Um but spiritually speaking, yes, I do identify as a Jew, but not exclusively is the thing. Um I am I am truly an interspiritual being in the sense that I I say yes to the sacred in in every holy house that I where I encounter um that that truth and so yeah. But I do I in in later life I have begun more and more to connect with my Jewish heritage and I and I do so I mean really Judaism as I can't remember who said it maybe maybe Houston Smith is really a religion of praxis it's orthopraxis rather than orthodoxy and it's what you do that makes you Jewish it's not so much signing on to a, a set of beliefs or to a belief system there really isn't a belief system you're expected to to proclaim but i do practice for instance shabbat every every friday at sunset i light the candles and and do the blessing of the wine and the bread and and call in the Shekhinah, which is the indwelling feminine presence of the divine in the Jewish mystical tradition, and spend that next 24 hours really trying to unplug from everyday life, from the compulsions that drive drive me the rest of the week, and not use the computer and not tend to the to-do list, you know. And I also uh, celebrate the High Holy Days in the fall, and Passover in the spring. So these are the things I do with my community that that make me feel connected to an ancient uh, tradition that I've been privileged to be born into. And I've had some great Jewish teachers like Reb Zalman, Shachter Shalomi of blessed memory, but I, it's not at all my only uh, flavor of uh, spirituality. Understand. If you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Mirabai Starr. She's the author of the book we're talking about right now, Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. I bring up your Judaism for uh, another reason as well. I find it fascinating that especially the time, the time of the late 60s into the, into the 70s, so many Jews were attracted to Eastern spirituality of of one shade or another, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. But not only did they become practitioners, they became leaders. They they helped move this this movement. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Ram Dass, for one, correct? Uh, exactly, Ram Fred. Das, you're so right. Yeah, Krishna Das. Yeah, and in the in the Vipassana uh, Buddhist tradition, the contemporary um, mindfulness meditation scene, they're almost all the teachers are Jewish: Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, uh, and in Zen, many many teachers, Roshis, uh, have been and are Jewish. It's it's fascinating. I was on the board of the Neem Karoli Baba Ashram here in, in America uh, for a few years, and there was one point where this is um, the, let's see, Maharaji, it, 
Neem Kroli Baba, this is Ram Dass's guru, and the guru of many of us. That's another one of my spiritual traditions. And I was looking around one day, and all of us, every single person on the board was Jewish. <laughs> no, except for one Indian. Yeah, so it's it's true. It's a phenomenon that many of us have been have been um, kind of watching with wonderment. And I've heard various theories, none of which I can quite remember now, about why that might be so. What do you think, Fred? I got nothing. <laughs> do, do you know Phil Goldberg? Do you know who he yes, is? Yes, very well. Love Phil. I had lunch with him uh, like uh, like uh, four days ago. Oh. And he's been on this program before, and we've spoken on uh, on a symposium before at Princeton. And yeah, oh. and he's. It's just, I don't know. I I can't tell you why, but it is fascinating. I I will tell you that that just. Looking at life, in most instances, wherever you have uh, a specialty, Jews are the specialists. <laughs> mm-hmm. Think about what they've done for American blues and jazz, right? The, uh, the, the, the entrepreneurs, the promoters, and the musicians. There's a tremendous number of Jews in there. And and it's yeah. not, you know in in like uh, Eastern spirituality it's not where they come from blues and jazz is an African American right. okay but but you know you you guys I think it's just your your uh, your education your passion for education your 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 natural curiosity that that uh, brings you to the forefront I I applaud it and and honor it all the time I really do. Well, one of the, you just reminded me, one of the theories I recently heard about why this might be so, and this would pertain to Hollywood and to blues and jazz as well, to the entertainment business, is, but much more to Eastern spirituality, I think, is that after the Holocaust, many, many Jews gave up on religion, at least on, on organized religion and on Western Judeo-Christian traditions that are predicated on some kind of personified deity who is looking out for our well-being, um, you know, that we can petition for, for good things and, and who will protect us. It went out the window. I know for my parents' generation that that is definitely the case. It's like, God, if there was a God, this would never have happened. And so we've, we're free, I think, to explore other realms. There was not a sense of, of um, having to swear allegiance to something that that had proven to be empty for a lot of people on the other hand there were many jews who held on even more tightly feeling that that judaism itself was in danger of disappearing from this world so but i do think that there was a there was a response that said forget this it's not working for us but still had a deep spiritual hunger that was that was fed in these other areas and 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 it is true that jews could explore without without the threat of something bad happening to them some people in other religions if you if you were a devout christian or a muslim and you explore hinduism and buddhism there might be a a, a serious theological concern there for you That's uh, right. uh, uh but in in judaism it, they don't have to give up their judaism to to chant hari krishna or exactly. om namah shivaya 
this right. all. It, it, we can speculate all day long on this, but regardless, it 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 certainly is a fascinating subject. But that's not the subject of your book, and I do want to get I do want to get <laughs> into that. Uh, um, so so. Let's talk again, going back to your childhood, because this really sets the stage for a lot of what happens later on. You were a part of the Lama Foundation, and this is something I'm I'm not aware of. So please educate me on the Lama Foundation. Well, Lama Foundation is an is an ecumenical or really interspiritual community in the mountains of northern New Mexico, uh, north of Taos. And it's the place, actually, where Ramdas wrote "Be Here Now," his iconic book that really, as you as you said, introduced Eastern thought to a, a Western, particularly American, audience in a in a in a specially American vernacular in 1970. Um, and I've been involved with Lama ever since uh, then, since the very early 70s. Lama is a place where all the world's religions and spiritual traditions are honored, studied, practiced. There's a lot of spiritual practice at Lama, so spiritual teachers from, from all the world's great traditions have come and given teaching, teachings there and continue to come. And the people of Lama manage very beautifully to weave together all of these different traditions. And so I moved to Lama when I was, when I was 14, and I was kind of, my spiritual formation really happened in that interspiritual context so that I was exposed to all of these great wisdom traditions as being of equal value, equally true, equally valid. And, and, um, and I still have relationships with all of these teachings and teachers many years later. So, so Lama is an intentional community also, so people live together there. There's a core group of residents, um, and people who are in, listening who are interested can check out their summer program. It's a wonderful way to spend a few months finding out if living in an interspiritual community is right for you. It's off the grid. It's sustainable. It's beautiful up in the mountains, exquisite buildings, and, and it's plunged into the middle of, of a wilderness area. So it's a very special place. Now, you were, you were brought into alternative viewpoints and practices in spirituality through your parents, but your parents seem to be a bit unstable <laughs> uh, in this. So, uh, how, how did they practice uh, their spirituality, how did they bring you into it, and what were some of the things that say you wouldn't you wouldn't do you wouldn't let happen to a child of yours introducing them this way hmm. well you know the the dysfunctionality of my family didn't come so much in the spiritual realm as as in the on a social level you know it was the seventies it was a very experimental time, drug sex, and rock and roll and my family lived communally, and and so there was a, a, a certain degree of neglect as they pursued their own um, lives, their own awakening, their own enlightenment, uh, and left left us to our own devices. But but there was also you know there were drugs and there were parents sleeping with other people and those kinds of things that I think were were 
chaotic, for us to say the least. My parents, though, were also grieving the death of their first child. My brother Maddie died in 1968 when he was 10 of a brain tumor, and I was um, I was seven, and and I had a younger sister and brother. And so by the time they uprooted our family from our suburban lifestyle in Long Island and took us on an odyssey around the world, the country mostly, and Mexico, um, we and landed in Taos, New Mexico. There was it was. There were two things going on for them. One is that they were grieving the death of their child, and the other is that they were participating in a very experimental time socially and, you know, in the culture where the, the norms of the nuclear family were kind of out the window anyway. But was, was the death of your brother, was that your introduction to, to loss, to mourning? Definitely, yes. It, it really kind of uh, exploded any sense that I might have had of the world being a safe and predictable place, but also it really introduced me to the power of the great mystery. It was like I was face-to-face with, with the void, but also with this kind of sacred, holy um, quality that we often experience in proximity to death and and somehow at that at that age that very um uh in influential age of 7 i that had a, a a lasting effect on my soul and my psyche that that encounter with the mystery of death it, was this a journey at that young age that you more or less took on your own that is to say confronting the mystery as opposed to being guided to that by your parents or any religious teacher or even a friend right it was definitely my own my own path my parents were not only non-religious jews but they were anti-religious they really uh felt that organized religion institutionalized religions were responsible for much of the suffering in this world both historically and and currently you know this was this was a time of, of war and a time of upheaval in, in the culture. And so their spirituality was was very kind of organic. My father was quite interested in esoteric religious traditions. Um, he read cards, and he was interested in in metaphysical phenomena, but not, not anything resembling religion. Understood. My mother was kind of interested in those things as well, but it was a time when people were very open to the magic in the world, synchronicities, um, supernatural phenomena that were just kind of unfolding every day. Of course, I'm sure psychedelic drugs enhanced that, 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 <laughs> that had to help. perception. And, and, and before, and Mirabai, before you go on, I, I hate to say this, but we are out of time today. I was wondering that. Yes, but, but we're going to ask you to come back next week and finish this conversation because it's so fascinating. I would love that, Fred. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I've been speaking with Mirabai Starr. She's the author of Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. For more information about Mirabai, you can visit her website, Mirabai Star, that's star with two R's, MirabaiStar.com. Please join us again next week here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Mirabai Starr. She's the author of Caravan of No Despair, a memoir of loss and transformation. A little bit about Mirabai. She was in... Uh, uh, she, uh, 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 can we just edit Start this up? A little bit about... Yeah. Okay. A little bit about Mirabai Starr. She was a professor of philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico for 20 years. She is best known for her acclaimed translations of Dark Night of the Soul and The Interior Castle, as well as God of Love. She currently is an inspirational author and speaker who leads retreats internationally on the mystics and contemplative life. Once again, please welcome Mirabai Starr to Common Threads. Hello, Mirabai. Hi, Fred. Uh, we had a fascinating conversation last week, um, and to just bring people up to speed who may not have been with us last week, the book we're talking about today, Caravan of No Despair, is a memoir of loss. Uh, you lost a child. You, you also you lost a little brother. There, is, there has been a significant—you've lost family. Uh, beyond death. You, you've uh, had challenges in your life, but you seem to have come out quite well. And much of this has to do with the deep spirituality that you've practiced over the years. Uh, and you were, in a commun- you were in communities in the Southwest. Gathering from the book, you really seem to have been a part of Something really magical at a time that that no longer exists. This is because we're going back like like thirty, forty years ago. Tell us about being in the Southwest, being in a spiritual environment, along with those elements that 
weren't really that spiritual, but but people were still trying. <laughs> does that does that make sense? Sure, it does. Well, you know, I, I consider myself to be dedicated to what's called the interspiritual movement. Um, it's interesting in my bio, you you said inspirational, and it's it's actually interspiritual, but but I hope it's also inspiring to people. Um, and the interspiritual movement is really about connecting with the heart of the world's great religions and wisdom traditions and finding that universal perennial truth that that resounds uh, through all of them and, and that truth having to do with com- love and compassion mostly and interconnectedness of, of all of all beings and all life and I really learned that uh, at here in northern New Mexico where I still live you know my family uprooted us from a from a stable suburban middle-class lifestyle and in Long Island, New York, in the very early 70s, and took us on an, an odyssey around the U.S., and mostly living in Mexico on an isolated Caribbean beach for, for a year uh, when I was 11. And we we weren't going to school, obviously, so we read a lot, listened to a lot of music, made a lot of art, and ended up here in the mountains of northern New Mexico, which was a place at that time where many of the world's religious traditions were were represented. There were spiritual communities forming in, in all of the various schools of Buddhism, Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, um, Theravadan Buddhism, uh, Hinduism. There, there were ashrams popping up. And uh, so, yeah, the Eastern traditions, but also there's a very strong Native American presence here in with Taos Pueblo and all the other Pueblos along the upper Rio Grande area. And Christian, mystical Christianity, Christian mysticism, I should say, uh, particularly the Spanish Catholic version of of Christianity that's practiced here in Taos that's been, in this actually this whole area, that has been practiced for 500 years since the Spanish first came to this area and has developed a uniquely mystical quality. Um, and so when I was a kid, you know, preteen and teenager, I was really steeped in all of these these different traditions, and they were all presented to me as being true and, and not in competition with one another. And so my spiritual formation really truly was an interspiritual one, and that continues to be uh, what I teach in, in my own in my own writings and, and talks and workshops around around the world is affirming the interconnected wisdom of all traditions. So, so yes, it was a particularly special time in the early '70s when all of these these spiritual traditions were being explored and reclaimed, really. But it's still going on today, and it's going on in, in a new way. There's this this sense that there's this emerging global spirituality that is an answer to our time and that the the impulse to otherize and categorize and build senses around the different religious traditions no longer makes sense it's in this in this global world my religion versus your religion 
is is uh, it's obs- it's an obsolete mindset, and people are really recognizing in their own hearts, not only out in the in the world, but inside themselves, ourselves, we're recognizing the interconnectedness of of all of all wisdom streams in 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 one common. Uh, ocean. Let me ask you this. When I was talking about that particular place and that particular time, I'm going to, I'm going to take an educated guess. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. The difference between when you were growing up and, and now I'm going to guess that the movements are a little more mature that now. that that people are a little more disciplined than back then is that correct very insightful fred i think you're absolutely right and i think that there are certain traditions particularly the eastern traditions of buddhism and hinduism and to some extent taoism that have taught us to cultivate that discipline that you speak of uh, particularly in the area of contemplative practice. You know, when you have a meditation practice and you show up for that silent sitting, no matter how you feel and what you're in the mood for and how easy or hard it is, something grows and changes inside you that, that does uh, produce this kind of ripening or maturity that you're speaking of. And whereas in, in the time of you know, my parents' era in the early 70s, and, and beyond, there was a, a kind of free-for-all, feel-good mentality that didn't uh, lend itself to a lot of um, uh, maturity. Mm-hmm. I'm also seeing more of a response to the call to service. Absolutely. To the greater community, uh, uh, not not just teaching meditation, but you know, feeding the the hungry and uh, building for those who are dispossessed, and, and all of that. That's that's beautiful, Fred. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. And my book, God of Love: A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is is very much um, built on that premise of the the only thing that makes when we cultivate an inner life and experience directly the presence of love is to then offer the fruits of that uh, of that encounter to a hungry world and in, in the area of service to humanity and to animals but also to the earth herself who's crying out. And, and I think that you know, people can still be... People can still be led by people who shouldn't be leading. That's that's never going to, to stop. And it happens in every tradition, really, that I'm aware of. However, I think that people are more circumspect today about accepting someone as a teacher, whether you want to call this, this teacher a lama or a guru or just a teacher. Um, and it was easier to fall prey to people who, again, should not have been teaching Tell us your encounter with Randy Sanders. <laughs> uh, not his real name, by the way. Um, yes, that was a perfect example of what you're speaking of, Fred. There, he was somebody who had a few spiritual experiences and a hunger for power and fancied himself some kind of extraordinary incarnation. Um, 
and that it was his task to to uh, dispense spiritual teachings, particularly in the Sufi tradition, but it, it, it was really just whatever he felt like, a little bit of Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda, <laughs> that, this and that. Um, and he, I met him when I was 14, and he uh, claimed to really see into my soul and, and recognized me as being this very high being that was like a divine, an incarnation of the Divine Mother and that it was his task to awaken me to my true, true self. And that involved a secret sexual relationship. So I was 14 and he was 40. And it was, um, this went on for, for throughout my teens and, and into my early 20s. Secretly, he, he was married with children my age, and um, he considered the secret part to be to be integral to the spiritual transmission. And uh, finally, we, when I was in my early 20s, we pretended that now that I was grown up, we fell in love with each other, and so he left his wife, and we got married. And uh, I, it took me another 10 years to be able to extricate myself from that relationship as he spiraled into uh, into mental illness and alcohol abuse. And finally I was able to leave and it was incredibly difficult because he had conditioned me to believe from a very young age that our relationship was, that the, that the cosmos itself really hinged on <laughs> on our our connection, and that if I were to disengage, there would be dire consequences throughout the universe. And so, I mean, it's a kind of serious brainwashing. And I've never that, heard that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it, that's why it took me so damn long. But there were—I was very vulnerable when I met him. My first love had just died. That was—that was my second really significant death. The death of my brother when I was seven. And the death of my first love at 14, Philip, who was killed in a gun accident. And my mother just left my father. My father was an alcoholic. My, my new stepfather was an alcoholic. I, I needed to get out of Dodge. And, uh, and Randy Sanders was my, was my uh, rescuer, I thought. Plus, he thought I was absolutely wonderful. And everybody else was kind of I- ignoring my beauty and gifts. <laughs> so my specialness, I'm a four in the Enneagram, if you're familiar with that, you know, being special is really important, was really important to me. So, yeah, I was vulnerable. If and you're I ju- did manage to leave, finally. If you're just uh, tuning in, you're listening to WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Caravan of No Despair, A Memoir of Loss and Transformation is the book we're talking about today. And my guest is its author, Mirabai Starr. What's interesting in the book, I notice, is that you never call him anything but, or maybe you maybe you have, but I I didn't see it, and I was actually looking for it. You never call him anything but Randy Sanders. You 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 never call him Randy. You never call him and Sanders. It's always Randy Sanders. It was that purposeful. Absolutely, that's interesting that you noticed that little device. I don't know. It was somehow. It enabled me to distance myself a little bit, and also to not. Um, I was also making fun of him. You know that that is definitely true. He actually had a, 
a spiritual name that he invented for himself, both a first name and a last name, the first one being being um, Arabic and the, and the second one being uh, Native American. So <laughs> talk about pretentious. <laughs> I couldn't possibly use his real name for all kinds of reasons. Also, I didn't want to upset his children. Um, but he's gone now. He, he died at the end of, as I was writing the book, the very, very end, actually, Really? But I, I didn't want to hurt them either, so there are all kinds of reasons I, I did that. Looking back, the, the, just the fact that your father was an alcoholic and your stepfather was an alcoholic, and then Randy Sanders, your first husband, was an alcoholic. What a quinky dink, yes. Yeah, yeah. Was he drinking, say, during your teenage years that you were aware of? Was he exhibiting alcoholic tendencies, which you probably wouldn't even, at that age, you might not have even recognized, but I'm just curious if he was even socially drinking back then. No, no, he was He was on a, a spiritual trip, as my father would call it, and he didn't start drinking until we got married. Mm. Let's talk about the the actual loss that is perhaps the most important one in the book, the uh, the loss of a child. If you would tell us the story of that loss, first of all. Thank you, Fred, for asking. Well, uh, my daughter Jenny died in a car accident when she was 14. I was 40. This was 14 years ago. And the day that Jenny was killed was the day that my first book came out, which was a, happened to be a translation of Dark Night of the Soul by the 16th century Spanish mystic John of the Cross, which is really a book uh, that is grounded in um, the transformational power of suffering. And I never anticipated that I would be plunged into the darkest night of my own soul um, the very day that that book came out into the world. Uh, Fourteen years later, and many books later, uh, the, this new one, Caravan of No Despair, my memoir, was published on, actually on the anniversary, and it was, a complete, uh, it was completely unplanned, on the 14th anniversary of Jenny's death. Caravan of No Despair came out. So this is the first book, really, uh, that tells my story, where I'm really standing in my own experience. All my other books are either translations of the mystics, the Christian mystics, or commentaries and reflections on the teachings of the mystics. And this book is, is my own gritty, very naked story. And... Um, Jenny, Jenny's death, coinciding with the release of The Dark Night of the Soul, has really set uh, me on my path that I have been faithfully walking, whether I like it or not, ever since, really integrating the power of those perennial teachings by John of the Cross about The Dark Night of the Soul and grief and loss. Did you have what it might be referred to in other traditions as a crisis of faith? Absolutely. I mean, that's when I tried to fire God. But um, in some ways, Fred, I was. it was not so much an issue 
of my belief systems uh, collapsing in the face of tragedy because somehow I had learned maybe from being so disillusioned by a charlatan teacher, lover, um, and also by my encounters with with, uh, teachings in Buddhism and in in Christian mystical traditions where I, I knew not to believe everything I think. I understood already before Jenny died that that it's not about belief, it's about a heart connection to the sacred, to the holy, that is personal and direct and mysterious. And so when Jenny died, it is true that none of my spiritual tricks and tools and techniques uh, worked anymore. They, they all failed me, but that wasn't a problem. I was willing, I really had no choice, um, but to let myself down into the arms of radical unknowingness of the fire of mystery and to just abide there. And so there was a long period where I couldn't engage in any of the spiritual practices, including contemplative practice or meditation that had sustained me all along. Um, nothing, nothing did. It all felt almost offensive. And certainly any kind of, of trite, cliche, spiritual um, platitudes were, were intolerable for me, as they are for most grieving people. <laughs> I'm sure many of you listening who are bereaved or have been um, know what I'm talking about. You just, it's really hard to bear when people try to, to use spiritual uh, um, talk and, and beliefs as a, there's this great phrase I love that's, that many of you are familiar with called spiritual bypassing. It's when we use spiritual beliefs and even practices to take us away from reality, to, to, to check us out rather than connect us to what is. And um, I couldn't bear anything other than, than authenticity during the, those early years. And what brought you back? What what took you out of that despair? What, what was what was on the uh, the caravan? Well, right. And so the the title of of the book is Caravan of No Despair, which comes from that beautiful Rumi um, poem. It's actually inscribed in his tomb in, in Konya, Turkey. Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshipper, lover of leaving. Even if you have broken your vows a thousand times, come, come again, come. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come again, come. And there was this sense of inclusiveness, of, of welcoming, that no matter what has happened to us and no matter what we have done, there is an unconditionally loving presence in this universe that enfolds and holds us. And and so I think that I experienced that holding, that unconditional love uh, in the in my deepest, darkest despair. However, I do need to say that I continue to grieve the death of my daughter fourteen years later. You know, as her friends are ha- having babies and 
and life continues and and my own child is, has not become a woman and a, a, is not in in relationship with me in the physical form anymore that her her beautiful being was was plucked like a like a newly blossoming flower from this world i, I hate it and i accept it i accept that this is what is and so my grief Continue. Your grief, but, can, but grief is not despair. That's right, Fred. Beautifully said. Yes. In fact, it becomes someone in a poem once, and I wish I could remember who described grief. That originally, initially, it's a blazing fire that burns us, and it's dangerous. In fact, we burn to death in many ways. We die with our loved ones. But later, grief becomes a warm hearth that we comfort ourselves beside. And I, and I think that has become true for me. And when you speak about service as, as the new mature dimension of spirituality, I think we're seeing in this global, globalized spiritual um, arena, it's, for me, service to other bereaved people has been the thing that has, the only thing that has made sense of my life and of Jenny's death. We're coming down to the wire on this episode of the show, Mirabai, but uh, briefly, if you can, if I can switch gears, because you've, you've brought up Dark Night of the Soul and the Interior Castle uh, a couple of different times this week and last week. These works have been translated into English before. What was the motivation for you to translate them? And and certainly, in a sense, in a very real sense, when somebody translates a work from another language, they make them their own. What do you think, if, if somebody was in the bookstore and they saw your translation of Interior Castle next to, you know, one or two others, what would you say, you know, if, if you had to put on your uh, your sales hat, <laughs> what what would you say, well, this, this might be my, why you perhaps would want mine versus the other, or vice versa? Thank you for asking, Fred. Well, the, the main reason is that the existing translations of these two Spanish mystics, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, were very, are very um, hard to read. They're very dense. They're literal translations from the early Renaissance Spanish, and they're, they're thickly theological very, very Catholic, and my translations, uh, although they are faithful, are not quite as literal, and they're, and they're presented in a very um, much more lyrical, accessible way, so people find it very easy to read my versions of Dark Night of the Soul and the Interior Castle, for instance, and, and they connect with people's own experience in a contemporary world much more than these, than these more... Um, um, traditional translations. They also speak to people beyond the Catholic and even the Christian tradition. They have a universal quality that is uh, informed by my universal experience with the world's great religions, and so they're, they they seem to resonate with people of any any religious orientation or none. I, I do recall now that you're saying that uh, reading Interior Castle years ago, yeah. Density is definitely an adjective to use when describing 
uh, that book, at least the translation that I have. And, and that translation is, you know, probably 30, 40 years old. So I'm sure you're correct. Mirabai, we are out of time once again. Uh, and I appreciate your presence so much, your your openness and uh, your, your candidness about the experiences you've had. And I wish you the greatest success with this book. Thank you so much, Fred, and thank you for the beautiful work you are doing in this world to bring us all together. You're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Mirabai Starr has been our guest today. We've been speaking of her book, Caravan of No Despair, A Memoir of Loss and Transformation. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.